Good morning. Gosh, it feels bright suddenly in here. You're, you're, you're awake. Not that you weren't yesterday, but I, I can really see it today. Um, So we, we and I this morning would like to offer some um, reminders and reflections on working with dukkha in our practice. When what appears to us not only does not look like the face of the angel, but looks like me and mine and permanent, and it's going to be like this forever, and it's probably my fault, or whatever is the constellation that we, we see. Because even if we've gone deep in our practice, there's a, an uncanny way that when the dukkha and the grasping arise, that it can appear as the truth. Anybody not recognize that? And that's touching for us, humbling for us. So I'm going to offer some reminders um, and I'll say a lot. I'm going to offer quite a lot of things and ways of considering. Please don't try and get it all. Maybe there's one, two, three, four pieces that you go, ah, yeah. So let your own um, practice instinct and antennae and intuition be guiding, not like, oh, by me, bombarded with information, but ah, yeah, yeah, that part, that part right there. That's where I want to go further. So you can listen in that way, not only receptively, but critically for where you know you need to work. And I won't say everything. There's so much to say. Such a rich, rich, rich world, the Buddha Dharma and the soul-making Dharma, so rich, so many doors. Please don't forget all the skills that you already have developed and cultivated, all the knowledges, all your ways of attending that are skillful. Okay. So, um, firstly, a little bit about energy body and emotions, primarily difficult emotions um, at this point because they're the ones that trouble us more, uh, obviously. Then I would like to speak a, a little bit about how dukkha can start to be woven into the soul-making dynamic. Okay, and of course, one supports the other. But we can be skillful with the energy body and emotions, and it may or may not be soul-making, right? That can just be s skillful, good practice. Um, and I just want to let you know that at 10.30, or when we're finished, um, Robert will offer a group, an optional group for anybody who would like to have a little bit more input on working with the hindrances to meditation. Right? So this isn't that, oh, you know, I'm supposed to be doing this super advanced stuff, I shouldn't need to do the hindrances. No, always good to remember that frame, that way of looking, the kind of work that we can do by um, using that lens. Okay, so if that would be of benefit, please go, and I'll say that at the end. Okay.
So I have a breath um, that will help me so that I don't just launch into this uh, banquet, the bank, the Dukkha banquet. <laughs> How would it be to consider it like that? If I read that story again, the one around Dukkha, of the seven stories, it went like this. And it's not uh, definitive, but see if there's anything here. You see the beginnings of a new path for relating to the dukkha that you meet in yourself. A soulful, imaginative way that is still precise, still kind and in line with emptiness, but for you seems to touch you more intimately and personally and include more of you than the ways you've worked so far. You intuit that there is something about the dukkha that calls you to stretch, to stretch your narratives of healing, of awakening, of freedom, that asks more from you. You see that dukkha can be re-enchanted, that gives it a place beyond identifying with it, or letting it go, or even beyond transforming it into beautiful qualities, where it can be restored to sacredness in a narrative that is rich and beautiful, meaningful and onward leading. Together, the desire for, the intuition of, and the framework for more beyonds for dukkha, serve to illuminate dimensions and meaningfulnesses of your dukkha that make you gasp, that make you bow at the beauty that is shown and make you want to prostrate in praise to what is beautiful and sacred. So when an emotion, in this case difficult emotion, arises, where do you feel it? Let yourself really know the work of the felt sense that is infinite. The body isn't a finite piece of instrument. Let yourself know where you feel it, how you feel it. Can you come closer? Can you come further away? Be specific. What does it feel like? Let yourself, let concepts surface to help be precise. Oh yeah, feels dense, feels light, feels tight, feels contracted. You know this work, I'm reminding you, let that range also extend. Okay. At times, can you let the dukkha really fade? Right? We don't want to make dukkha the whole point here. At times, practicing the skill and all the practices that support the dukkha to fade. Can you at times let dukkha be present? Come into the foreground of the energy body without your attention and awareness collapsing right onto it. All right, so let's say I've established there's something tight around my chest. Don't know what's going on. My mind is saying it's his fault whatever it is, I come back, I sense there's a tightening in the chest. Oh, wow, it's a whole mass of suffering here. Okay, 
can I attend with that as foreground or like the center of a target, you know, like a bullseye in this concentric rings. And the dukkha and the energetic felt sense of the dukkha in the center, but your awareness is still wide. This is a huge skill. So it doesn't mean we failed when we collapse onto it. We will. We'll collapse onto it. We can stretch like we did yesterday. Stretch. Remember with the hands? Stretch open. Not yanking yourself open. This is always an intimate, nuanced conversation. We don't yank ourselves about. But stretching open that fabric of awareness again. Wow. Okay. And can it will alter the sense of the dukkha, but it's still maybe very tight. Can I have background? Can I have a field attention? A whole field attention without that only merging into um, a sort of harmonious oneness of quality, but where the dukkha can be to the fore. So that's a huge skill to practice. Is there enough mindfulness um, to meet this right now? To meet it in a way that does just not just become it. The mindfulness, the energy of the mindfulness needs to be brighter than the energy of the constellation, the vortex of the dukkha. Right. So we can practice ways to support the mindfulness, that which is seeing, sensing, and recognizing what's happening, that can step out, we could say, from the, the vortex. Using the practices you know how to deepen the mindfulness. Naming what is happening. Ah, this is dukkha. This is dukkha. How it feels precisely. Coming to somewhere else in the body that's not under so much pressure. And locating and cultivating your attention there as a, as a counterpoint from which you will then shuttle back and let your heart and mind touch the dukkha, right? There are multiple, multiple skills. They're all um, beautifully put out by teachers and Rob very beautifully and precisely all on Dharma Seed. And so if what you realize today and this week is, oh yeah, I want more work there, make that your business. Kindness, don't forget kindness. Come to the boundless heart, the Brahma Viharas. Put your hand to the ground and remember that refuge. Practicing with Vedana. Oh, that really gives me some anchorage. Oh yeah, this is on one level, it's not its whole story, but on one level, ah, this is unpleasant. Okay. That helps break the spell of that binding of self and other and world that keeps getting made. Right? Give attention at times to the quality of attention that you're bringing to the dukkha. 
we get so focused on the dukkha, even if we know a lot about ways of looking and ways of attending, something about dukkha is quite compelling, either that it's really real or that it really shouldn't be and I'm trying to push it away, in which case we're also making it real. The quality of attention, can the way of attending be intelligent? Meaning, can it have a range of ways of attending? Can it sometimes come close? Can it sometimes really leave it alone? Can it sometimes ask a beautiful question? Can it sometimes challenge? Can it sometimes hold? Relationships need different things at different times. And it's not just about making the dukkha better or soulful. Our way of attending, our way of looking is completely implicated in the whole show. Can I give attention to my way of attending? Hmm. For imaginal practice, soul-making dharma, we want the range that is possible of the heart's emotions, from the subtle, subtle, subtle to the weird and wonderful. We want the range of what this human and animal angelic heart is capable of for the richness and the resonance that that brings to our soul-making work and the fertility that it brings. And for soul-making practice, we want a range of energetic um, resonances in the body too. I think Rob named last night in the ceremony the capacity to hold charge. Right, but the energetic resonances from the from the from the most transparent, from the spacious to the transparent to the sort of filigree um, delicacy of the whole field of this energy body, right to the firm and the dense and the dark power of pure, pure, of, of a kind of a solid presence, like dark rock. And that's just two ranges that I can think of this morning. I don't want to limit it there. All right. So for imaginal practice, a key is being able to loosen the grasping and aversion, absolutely but not always having to let something unbind all the way. Okay, so <laughs> I'm <coughs> looking at the clock and thinking the thought that Rob often thinks. That <laughs> <laughs> Something about this work, isn't it? You know what I'm going to say. If you don't, it's that I have a lot to say and I'm wondering about what to leave out. So today, image may arise for you as you're working. You don't have to be working with dukkha today, right? You're not having to make it a project, but when there is something like that, um, work with these skillful ways, not forcing image, but image might arise. It might come out of the dukkha, either initially as a reflection of the dukkha, like the image looks like the dukkha, and it may, it may or may not be imaginal yet, right? Or an image may arise that kind of meets the dukkha, a loving image or, or a, 
unusual kind of image that somehow resonates and touches your, not only your heart, but touches your soul in a way that you can see how it fits or you may not see how it fits with the dukkha. But don't for, try and force that today. There's something about this work that is um, delicate in this conversation between the way of attending and the world's multiple malleable potentials. Um, yeah. <clears throat> I think I'm going to move on and leave a chunk out here. It's a kind of question between shall we be thorough with one track or shall we present some of the different doorways that different of you might be going through today? That's the, that's the art of this. Maybe we'll find a way in this next generation of how to do, <laughs> how to do this. Okay, so I want to talk a little bit about how dukkha can become soul how it can be, and the dukkha here, including our way of looking, of course, that mutual implication, how the dukkha can be woven into the soul-making dynamic. So, we need the idea, we need to look at the ideas that are always going to be there about dukkha, when dukkha arises, whether or not we're thinking them consciously, there will be implicit ideas about dukkha, about its origins, about what it means, about me or others, about what you're supposed to do with it, and about what's supposed to happen to it once you've done the thing you're supposed to do with it. And hopefully, practicing in this context will let us see what ideas about dukkha might be helpful, which ones, aren't, which ones aren't helpful, which ones are helpful but might be limiting the soul-making dynamic, and which ones can surface here and be seen. Oh yeah, look, there's that idea. I didn't even know I had that idea as a single view about dukkha. And then how can we loosen that and look at the ideas? So... <clears throat> we want the capacity to be critical, and I use the word not meaning judgmental, I mean that sort of sharp, discriminating aspect of mind to actually see what are some of the frames I'm bringing here, even good Dharma frames. That doesn't mean we ditch those, not at all, but are we seeing them as a single lens? with which we always approach the dukkha, right? So this critical faculty, this sort of sharp discriminating that can, that can see what's different between this and that, as well as the felt sense. And if we're only a sharp, analytical, critical type and no felt sense, then it will be interesting, but it won't touch right into the intimate core of our soul. And if we're only, and I'm painting these as really gross, right? Because I've seen them as really gross in myself. 
if we're only a kind of resonant, um, energetic, sensing kind of soul, without the critical, sharp precision, then there may be a lot of richness, but there may be also a limit to the soul making. There can be the, the hard part, which is just swimming in the hell realms. There can be the lovely part, which is the sensitivity, but that may be limited if I don't bring that critical analysis in, into what ways, what ideas about dukkha um, are actually coming here as I sense myself. So a little bit about logos of dukkha, and again, just any one or two pieces that might be helpful for you. So the question really is, what lets dukkha get swept into the soul-making dynamic? And what's in the way of that? So origins of dukkha. um, Many views, philosophies that might be operating. Um, And one of the painful ones, this usually not helpful, possibly always not helpful, is the logos of blame. Um, That even if all of you in this room would probably say, I don't adhere to a logos of blame. I don't think the origins of dukkha are somebody's, my fault or somebody else's fault. I know that in my head. But moment to moment, we vote with our attention. And our attention is going to be shaped and molded unless we can see it by certain logoi that we're just swimming in, right? So intellectually, I might not adhere to that, but it might be affecting my poise, my stance, my way of coming into contact with this thing that I keep having to deal with, this kind of pain, that kind of memory. Um, The narrative at the beginning of the Western canon, so to speak, or the beginning, at least at the beginning of our... um, Western, yeah, I'll say that for now without going into it, is that the first creation story in the world where someone is to blame for suffering, right? The creation stories that are at our roots. And that, even if we're secular and we think we don't buy into that, it can very easily start to affect our way of looking at our own material. So just really let, if you see that one, not everyone may carry that, but I know many of us do. Um, let see if you can see. You don't have to go hunting for it, but sometimes there's a very gentle look, a very gentle question. Oh, gosh. Yeah, it's my fault. Because I did something wrong. Because there's something wrong with me. Really. You know, I might be able to do all this soul-making, but the bottom card is there's something wrong with me, or the other one. And what would it be to see that that as a logos, as a conceptual, as an an idea? And when I remind myself of that right now, something softens. It's an idea. It cannot tell me the depths and the truth it cannot point to the singular, there's no singular cause for dukkha. 
that level. Views about the object of the dukkha, that it's real or not real, that emotions are real or not real, either in this binary, either of these binaries will limit our logos. Again, in our intellectually, we may know about the middle way, but moment to moment, we vote with our attention. If we've been someone who hasn't had much access to their emotions and then suddenly gets more access to their emotions, then we can start to think emotions are real. Emotions are primary. That's the most important thing, right? It may be the most important thing for that period of our practice, but to not tighten around that, making emotions now sacrosanct, having been ditched or having been thought of as uh, always, we always rose above them, not now making a new logos where emotions are the one true way. Okay. Seeing if you're making anything primary. Um, classic one here will be making our biology primary. Um, that actually my n- nervous system or my brain is really the first cause of everything. Um, and so I can do this nice soul making on the top but actually the bottom line is, is about my wiring. Um, there are many, use, many, many useful, both physical and psychological logoi that really look deeply into nervous system and I pay homage to those. But in soul making dharma, we want to see where the logos is getting narrowed into making something primary, first cause, the single view. That's where, the, that's where it's limited. As William Blake said, free me, save me from singleness of vision. Save me. There's no soul there. Hmm. A little bit more about idea. The idea about what dukkha means and what you're supposed to do with it. Again, you might think, I'm not this much of a conceptual type, I just kind of be with it. If you're just being with it, don't underestimate how much these ideas are in the background. This is what's going to make this kind of... I I said it already, but I think because I was a convert... (laughs) some years ago to this sort of sharp discriminating parts like this is going to make the difference for those of us who may come from more the the felt sense resonant type of sensibility this will make the difference into something being interesting to it being um, opening up a sacred cosmos for us um So just want to offer a couple of possibilities that can happen, have, have happened for me, I can say, in terms of a Dharma frame. Uh, the way I've used it or twisted it to fit my own ego wishes, or the way it might be just become a single lens. might be skillful, but might be a single lens. Um, so one about suffering is um, that it's not 
morally bad. There's no one to blame for suffering from a Dharma perspective. Um, but it shows that there's clinging and craving and cling, clinging and craving are bad. <laughs> They're not. But that I might start to have that view. It's not me that's bad, but I should get rid of that clinging and craving. Clinging and craving should be uh, abolished. Um, of course we want to learn how to unbind the clinging and the craving and take that all the way if that is our heart's love and desire for the emptiness and understanding that. But in soul-making dharma, we want to know unbinding enough where there's enough self-sense still there that the self and other and world that can be made from this dukkha um, is soulful. soulful. Soul needs two-ness, needs self, and it needs uh, the other. And the other could be the dukkha, the other can be any other, any of anything that I gaze upon and sense can become the other. Um, sometimes, as Dharma people, and I have had my, yes, if uh, you can <laughs> confess later if you know this one, that we want to avoid situations where there's suffering. Sometimes that's skillful, sometimes it's sheer avoidance because we've got a logos and a distaste for suffering. Non-suffering is better than suffering. Okay. Um, and we shut down our world that way. Or suffering is not to be avoided, but my job is to always unbind the clinging. Um, if it's always to unbind the clinging all the way, then we might, we might be just down one single track. Um, so for some of us, typically, that means that I always lean, lean into unfabricating and unbinding. That's where I go. It's almost like I don't even think about it, but dukkha arises, and whatever are my skills and gifts and practices, I always either soften and widen and open all the way till the self-sense kind of goes out of it. Or um, with whatever practices I am adept in, somehow the problem just drains out, the, the self-sense drains out of it. Um, or, suffering is not wrong, but I have some idea that it's a little bit unnecessarily complexifying things. It's like, hmm, if I have the option of simplifying, why don't I go there? Now, we want that option, absolutely. And the, the Dharma is brilliant, brilliant at offering this. But if it becomes our one path, our default path, or we have a logos that says simplicity is better than complexity, then we will be limiting our doorways to soul making. It is not saying now that complexity is better than simplicity, that's another binary, right? It's having the option. So just check and see at times if things aren't opening up, image isn't arising, is there just some way that I'm leaning into simplicity and in the name of simplicity, letting the dukkha cool, cool out, wonderful if you can do that, lucky you, God bless you, letting the dukkha cool out, but in the name of simplicity, I might be muting the eros. I might be muting that desire for more range, more beyonds for dukkha. The, 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 I might be muting the fire of the emotions because I'm preferring coolness to heat. Yeah.
but watching the other extreme where I'm privileging heat over coolness and I make juiciness and intensity the whole point. That would be another um, potential narrowing of where we can go. So not making suffering the point. It's not the point. Um, Not privileging the suffering. Sometimes I've seen at times in my practice thinking that or sort of a bit compelled to go through every doorway of unpleasant sensation that showed itself to me, thinking that that was where the Dhamma doors would, would be found. And if we've never done that, then it's really good practice. But if we limit it to that, then that desire for soul doesn't get so much a look in. So just a um, little bit about Eros for Dukkha. Um, Funny combination, isn't it? Often there'll be Eros for the end of Dukkha. That's great. But Eros for the Dukkha, without it being, you know, as if not just the identification with the Dukkha, but what does that mean, Eros for the Dukkha? So depending on my skills and my ideas about Dukkha, um, Eros will be more or less available. So in skillful practice with the dukkha will include um, allowing and accepting. That will be one part of the doorway into skill with dukkha. Eros for dukkha will have another step for me. It feels like where not only is there acceptance and allowing, that's important, but there's a kind of prayerful or if that word doesn't work for you, you can just use skip that part and just say an assenting I assent to this dukkha as somehow whether I can see it or not yet that there are more beyonds here that I want to know something in this arising something either of my faith in possibility or because somebody's told me that there's more to the dukkha that something in me lights up of there's more here for me to move into beyond identification, letting go or trying to turn it into a beautiful quality. All of the second two are, are beautiful, important. Willing to um, at times see if there's faith in what's more and also just wanting what's more I want I want what's more I get that I get that about that story she read that there's something about dukkha and the logos of healing and freedom there's something in me that just switches on sometimes it's an irritation like I don't think I found it yet sometimes it's like a flame it's like there's more here for us to understand about dukkha Sometimes I can, uh, uh, just a question, a beautiful question can help stimulate the eros. I'm, um, the other day I was, uh, grief was arising and heartbreak was arising. And uh, 
it was hard to be with. And I saw that I was, you know, trying to do some jobs and I wasn't able to be with it. And I saw I started to get irritated with someone. It's like, oh, okay. It's sort of, you know, the sort of grief that kind of uh, undoes you a little bit. Didn't want to be undone, so I got irritated instead. And I sort of, um, and I saw that and I think, okay, let's go sit. A little refuge here needed. So I sat, breathed, sensed, oh, okay, this is grief. Oh, this is hard to bear. Oh, okay. And without trying to skip straight to try and make this into something else, really taking care with that, tending, tending, really tending, tending with real care. And at some point remembering my devotion, actually, my devotion to what I want to serve in this lifetime helped get me on track. And then the question came, which becomes practiced question now, can this become soul-making? Can this become soul-making? And the question itself, and where it was being asked from, allowed something to loosen just a little bit initially, that I start to see this in a different way that I'm not just trying to compulsively get rid of it or rise above it or blame someone or... Um, but something in me reminded me, switched on my eros for what I truly, in my best moments, want to serve. And the flame goes on. You, can, you may have and will find your own ways, your own doorways to help switch on the eros or remind yourself of the eros or not even switch on, maybe it's not off, but actually settle into that uh, that knowing of yourself where Eros is alive and well. So the question, can this become soul-making, isn't a yes or no question. It's like, yes, it can. I know the Logos, yes, it can, probably. No, it's a question that takes you into that sensitive, um, improvised conversation, not necessarily a wordy conversation, but a duet between the two, you, use that, use that term loosely, you, the one who is seeing and sensing, if you're uh, identifying more with that part, and what is being seen and sensed. Right. It might be a prayer, if you're a prayerful type of soul, as if you're praying to the more beyonds, show me how to let this dukkha become soul so that I can serve you. Might be a prayer. It might be a question. It might be a reminder to myself. Is there something I want more than freedom from suffering? Is there something that calls me more than freedom from suffering? So some of these things will resonate with you and some of them won't. Again, take two or three that do. I wonder if I should leave it there. And there's... 
<laughs> there's always more. There's always more. I, I, what I was going to say was a little bit about how Dukkha can become the beloved erotic imaginal other. And I think that can wait probably till tomorrow or later on tonight. Yeah, I think it would be good to sit a little bit. That's my sense. Fourteen minutes past. Yeah. So let me briefly guide you in. There's so much. It's so rich, as you can see. And know where you're working. Know where you're working at any point. So remember that the primary home base, the home base for our practice of soul-making Dharma is your body. Letting today be a day of deepening and tending to the body as energy body. Not needing to look for dukkha. Let yourself dare also to deepen into the loveliness and the nourishment and the spreading and the filling and the pervading. Letting your posture be upright. and gentle. Tending with the light lens what ways of attending right now allow this arena to be filled with bright attention. Stretching open the aperture of awareness, if it shrinks and collapses into a thought or a feeling, widening 
stretching the fabric to fill the whole frame of your body and a little bit space around the body. The back of your skull. Behind your spine. Permeating through your thighs and the space around your thighs. Tending with care. and tending with desire. With eros. For what is more, more beauty, richness, meaningfulnesses, and sacrednesses. That either whisper to you, or herald and call you loudly. In the nearby neighborhood of Seoul. Have you got your hips?
in the walking practice today, um, tending to the energy body. Walking, moving, with the um, inspiring and sobering thought that we're always making something with our attention. What are you going to make? And we have a chance to be part of that when we're mindful. We have a chance to participate in what's being made. So, keep practicing. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.